Good evening, ladies, uh, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, my name is Anthony Atkinson. I'm one of the many emeritus professors of statistics here at the LSE. Um, I'd like to welcome you all, particularly, of course, those of you who have come here from outside the LSE. Once the talk is over, and there will be questions of any kind you like, um, there will be a reception um, open to everybody. Okay, well, um, today's the talk will be given by David Spiegelhalter. I've known David for a long time, and for nearly all of the time that I have known him, he has been working in the MRC Biostatistics Unit in Cambridge, applying Bayesian methods to a variety of uh, problems in the analysis of medical data. Um, in the last, I suppose, what would it be, three or four years, is it? You, 60% of you has been this Winton professor, and the other 40% of him is a professor in the Statistics Laboratory at Cambridge. Amongst, uh, he's had many uh, distinctions, amongst other things. He was elected a Fellow of the Royal Society for his statistical work. So, please, David. All right. Right, thank you all very much for um, laptop for turning up um, on this evening, and uh, especially as it's obviously it's clearly it's a bright sunny evening outside. That uh, it's very good of you to give up this time. Um, you, usually, I do a lot of schools talks, and uh, you know when they're milling around, I try to put up something to vaguely entertain them. Well, you got the LSE adverts, but you would have got this, which is um, well, a little animation that we've um, we produced to represent uh, yeah, so risk. Uh, the, this uh, little fellow here is at risk of being hit by lightning. Now, he's not a much, he hasn't been hit yet. It's been going 1400 while we've been waiting times. And what happens is that the lightning comes down and there's 20 branches. So every branch, it turns either left or right, and it's like flipping a coin, it's just 50-50. It turns out that in order for him to get hit when he's down here, he's got to turn left 20 times. And I won't get you to do it, but usually I get the kids say, okay, what's the chance of that happening? And some bright spark says one in a million or so. There's always some bright spark that actually gets it right, you know, exactly what the chance is, two to the, two to the 20. But it's about one in a million chance of it getting hit. And then the idea is, though, that if we move him into the middle, he's much more likely, it's like some old, you know, space invaders game, he's much more likely to get walloped because although each of these particular paths is equally likely, it's just got one in a million chance. Ah, there he goes. There's so many paths that can actually lead to the middle. Oh, he's really going to... Oh, look at that. One after the other. Poor old man. He's really going to get smacked. And uh, the point is that although the paths are completely random, the pattern that one has developed is totally predictable. It's a binomial distribution. It's going to look a bit like a normal distribution. And um, so, you know, I suppose in a lot of the work I do is to try to illustrate the idea that chance, although the whole point about it is it's unpredictable in a particular case, becomes predictable when you put all the events together. Okay, so just, that's just a bit of background because um, I'm actually sponsored by Winton. Winton's a hedge fund. Uh, that paid, that's paid for my post, 
and, uh, but I don't know any financial stuff. Um, we've got a website, Understanding Uncertainty, where we concentrate on things like important issues of the day, like football, um, Paul the Octopus, um, the Walker's Crisp Weather Forecasting Competition. So those are the important things that we deal with most of the time. Um, there's also, uh, I hate to advertise it, but a, a, a YouTube video which features me, in fact, two of me, taking my clothes off. So um, <laughs> it's not necessarily recommended. But what I do want to recommend very strongly is this month on Enrich. Enrich is the website for the Millennium Mathematics Project that provides um, exercises for teachers to use or kids to use themselves, everything from primary to sixth form. And this month is Probability Month, hooray! And um, there's all sorts of great stuff of um, what does random look like. You can guess what quite a lot of these are. They're sort of standard tricks one does with uh, on probability. We've got birthday problems, we've got everything in those, lottery problems, sociable cards, which is a nice one, etc., etc. So um, that's the kind of thing I do quite a lot of, which is trying to improve the way in which chance and probability are discussed and handled in society. So to get to my talk, why should we try to quantify uncertainty? Well, why should we try to put a number on uncertainty? I mean, it's difficult to know what uncertainty even means, and that's what I'll come to a bit later. But uh, I suppose the running theme um, throughout my talk is actually how difficult this is, and how, um, in the, at the end of my talk, I'll particularly talk about the importance of taking into account the value systems, the cultural um, attitudes of the public who we're communicating to, perhaps, as scientists. At the same time, so you know, this is really difficult stuff when we're talking about the uncertainty about climate change, about swine flu, about GM foods, all these issues that people are controversial. However, my deep belief, and many people would, you know, this is taken from other people's opinion, is that when I say people, I mean everybody, us, policymakers, the public, journalists, and everything, should at least have some idea of the magnitudes of how likely something is and how good or bad it might be. And that saying there is a risk of something is totally unacceptable. Even if you, you know, don't know exactly what it is, you should try your absolute bestest to put a magnitude on things. Otherwise, we just can't communicate. So the natural way in which people try to communicate risk is through numbers. And this has become a, a subject of, of a lot of research now. It's really um, a lot of cool stuff going on. Um, so, for example, a, a recent paper in the medical literature um, it looks about the statistical numeracy of the public, how well they can understand health messages. And um, so they do population surveys uh, in Germany, in the US, they've done it. And one of the standard questions, this has become an absolute classic question now, repeated again and again um, in many populations. Which of the following numbers represents the biggest risk of getting a disease? <clears throat> one in a hundred, one in a thousand, one in ten. Now, it is a bit late in the day, and so I'm not going to test you on this. I don't want you know, don't worry, don't worry, it's all right. I'm not going to ask you to put your hands up, anything. But the point about that is that the, the interesting thing is what proportion of the population do you think gets that wrong in a survey population? Yeah, yeah, anybody got any ideas? Sorry? It's not quite that bad. The percentage get it wrong, 28% in Germany, 25% in the USA. So a quarter of the population can't answer that question. This is, this is this kind of research that has actually produced a, a lot of effort to get away from, particularly using these odds form of risk communication, because the bigger number is associated with a smaller risk, which actually um, many people who, with limited numeracy, are going to have difficulty with. So, um, one of the things that uh, we've been playing with is, is trying to put risks into whole numbers so that the bigger number corresponds to the bigger risk. And um, one of the things that was invented, unfortunately not by me, but by an American, uh, by Ron Howard, 30, 40 years ago, was the micromort. 
Micromort is a one in a million chance of death. It's a, unit, a small unit of risk. And it's deliberately chosen the very small unit because it's to do with everyday risks. Um, in fact, about 50 people in England and Wales die of non-natural causes every day. So that's so it's about 17,000 a year and um, 50 people a day. So they, they're killed, they get run over, they fall down ladders, they, um, they're in a car crash, whatever. You know, they wake up in the morning fine and they go to bed dead. You know, that something happens to them during the day is non-natural causes. And there's about 50 million people, give or take, in the country. So it's like one micromort a day is our sort of, you know, um, three score years and ten years, it's our sort of average risk from a non-natural death per day. One micromort a day. So keep that in mind, and I'm going to make various comparisons about what this micromort means. And you're making comparisons that you know, can be quite uncomfortable sometimes. So, for example, you could say, you know, how far can you travel for a micromort? If you want to spend your micromort, you could drive to Bristol and back, for example. And uh, actually, it would be less than a micromort. It depends if you went on the motorway or not. Because you, the motorway, you get further than this. If you're younger, you don't get as far, etc., etc. If you're a young man, you don't get as far as that. So, so there's 250 miles you can spend your micromort. Or you could walk to Bristol. No, no one's going to walk to Bristol. But you could... Um, like, you know, I, I decide every day whether to cycle, drive or walk to work. Actually, no, I decide whether to cycle to work. And cycling to work, the distance, is about 10 times as dangerous, 10, 12 times as dangerous as driving. Now, it depends how you cycle, where you cycle. These are averages, you know, concealing a huge variability. Now, if I walk, I don't even get that far. I only get about 17 miles. And if I was a middle-aged biker, like some of my friends are, um, you, do, you, um, you know, very sadly, you hardly get down the end of the drive. So it's, it, it, but the six miles on a motorbike is quite a good unit, quite a good image, I found, for a micro one in a million chance of death. So six miles on a motorbike, because we can compare other things that we might do. Um, we could say, um, what about going scuba diving? Health and safety executives say about five. So about 30 miles on a motorbike five micromorts to go scuba diving on average. Hang gliding, we can use up a whole week's worth all in one go if we throw ourselves off a hillside. Horse riding's quite interesting. The horse riding one is of course deliberately in there because of the Nutt story last year in which David Nutt made a comparison between horse riding, um, which uh, the addiction to horse riding, which he called equacy, and taking ecstasy. So, and he made that clear. And what's fascinating about that is not so much the magnitudes, because in fact, we think, I think they're broadly about the same. Going horse riding is about half a micromort an outing, I think roughly. And taking ecstasy once is about one micromort, I think. That's our, you know, roughly. So they're the same order of magnitude, broadly. You can choose to take ecstasy, to go horse riding. No, you see, these are not additive. You know, don't, if you do them both at once, you don't just add them up. So you don't remember that. Um, but the point about this is that he fell, you know, really fell foul of cultural attitudes towards making that these were unacceptable comparisons to be made by the politicians. Although they're both voluntary activities undertaken by young people for fun, um, in that sense they are you know, far more exchangeable than many of the comparisons that are going to be made. It was culturally unacceptable to compare those two things, which is why, of course, it's such fun to do it. So I'm going to make a few more culturally unacceptable ones. Um, are drugs, drugs interesting. This is some latest data from my colleague Sheila Bird. Um, looking at micromorts per week among users of drugs. And there's some very interesting patterns here. So um, for heroin, for example, um, about 65 a week. So that's about, uh, what's that, about 10 micromorts a day, about 60 miles on a motorbike. 
from being a heroin user. And this is for um, a sole mention on death certificates, so not in, in combination with other things. Um, there'll be a lot more, a uh, lot higher than this to have heroin mentioned on the death certificate. But for women, for women heroin users, are much lower risk. It's one of these discoveries that uh, my colleagues just, they just made. And interesting, the other thing is for cocaine, um, for young cocaine users uh, have a very low mortality per week of use, and slightly older gets higher, and old cocaine users, for whatever reason, appear to have a much higher mortality associated with their cocaine use. There are other things. Those, those are illegal drugs. Now, what about just, you know, being ill? Well, actually, not being ill. These are, not, these are actual things. You know, I mean, giving birth, for example, in this country at the moment is 80 micromorts, about 500 miles on a motorbike giving birth. Now, that's, I mean, again, it's not a choice you make. You know, shall I go on ed to Edinburgh on a motorbike or shall I give birth? So, you know, these comparisons as it are, um, in some ways, discordant, culturally discordant in many ways. And uh, so they're going to get even worse, I'm afraid. However, I still believe it's actually useful to get a feeling of magnitude of these things. Partly because then you can make comparisons. Giving birth in the USA is double the risk. But, of course, that will disguise the fact there's a huge gradient in the USA. But it means that for some people, the, birth, the risk of giving birth in the USA is, is, is staggeringly high, and it's half in Sweden compared to still compared with the UK. I mean, caesarean um, is extremely high. Well, I shouldn't say extremely high. It's 1,000 miles on a motorbike. It's still very safe. 170 out of a million people have caesareans will actually lead to uh, the woman's death. But it's still, you know, it's, it's comparatively safe, but it's still not that safe. And interestingly, anaesthetic, because um, some of the anaesthetists I know will say, oh, the anaesthetic, the risk, oh, it's just like crossing the road. Uh, no, no, it's like walking 170 miles. You know, it is not nothing at all. It's between five and ten. It depends which literature you look at. So the, and that's just the anaesthetic, not the, um, not the actual um, operation. Now, the nights in hospital is very controversial. Um, people are trying to work out what the, what the dangers of being in hospital. Um, there's some very high figures quoted for the US. And I've just done a fairly simplistic analysis, but using some, some solid data. Um, the solid data we've got is the National Patient Safety Agency, which is about to be abolished, as a quango, um, and they have a voluntary reporting system. So it's, these are bound to be underestimates. And they have reported to them every safety incident anonymously um, to, 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 that has happened. And they have a million in the last year being reported. Most of these no harm to the patient, some low harm, some moderate, some severe. But 3,700 were safety incidents that led to the death of the patient. In other words, these were avoidable deaths, and that must be a, an underestimate. That's 10 a day in the NHS, patients dying from avoidable causes, according to this voluntary reporting system. What's the denominator? Well, I, perhaps this is a bit low. I've taken people spending the night in hospital rather than day cases. Now, maybe some of those deaths are day cases, but I've actually looked at spending the night in hospital. 135,000 people, on average, spend the night in hospital every day. When you do the sums, you work out that that's 75 micromorts a day being in hospital, from, to die from causes that are, that are essentially non, not to do with your illness. Now, those will tend to be older people, and you might get infections, might fall over, might have all sorts of things happen to them. But um, so, you know, in that sense, it's a, they're a sick population anyway. However, this is a huge risk, absolutely massive risk. And we can actually make comparisons, again, culturally, I think, probably fairly unacceptable with what the risk is faced if I was serving in Afghanistan. 
10,000 UK service personnel at the moment serving in, UK, in Afghanistan. Over the last, over a 10-week period, over the summer, um, the last 10-week period, um, 23 of them were killed. That's 33 a day micromorts per day. It's 200 miles on a motorbike for every man and woman serving in Afghanistan is the risk they're facing. Um, it's interesting, we look at this again, this is data from my colleague Sheila Bird, um, that's just been published, taken from the iCasualties.org website, looking at the micromorts a day faced by UK personnel in Afghanistan since 1906, a dip in the middle and then this increase. Now this wobbling around is not just chance because we can look at the, the risks of the US personnel which closely mirror the, uh, the UK pattern up to here. Now the drop in the US after, after that period, um, not particularly because the, risk, the number of US casualties have gone down, it's because there's been a huge increase in the US numbers of people serving. Okay, so we're making some strange comparisons, but they're still trying to quantify. Um, I, I, I believe those are still beneficial things to do. One of the um, issues that comes up in a lot in, in medical work is um, uh, trying to quantify the uncertainty about the benefits and harms of treatment. So we're not just looking at these risks in the outside world, now we're talking about treatments we might take. And the Cochrane Collaboration is this major, you know, enormous collaborative body, international collaborative body, that's um, got uh, 23,000 systematic reviews in which they take every medical intervention that they can, essentially, for which there's evidence, and evaluate that, that evidence. And what I'd like to talk about, this is a, an attempt they've made to quantify the impact and the uncertainty about the benefits of an interve every intervention. It's reported in a uniform format. This is the summary of findings table. I think all 23,000 systematic reviews are supposed to be reported in this format. It's a very exciting development. You know, it's very almost militaristic. Everybody must do the same thing. And interestingly, they're, they're using, the way they're doing it all is in terms of what you'd expect to happen in a thousand people. Again, they're trying to get to whole numbers. Now, they don't have to do a million people like they did in micromorts, because these are high risk, these are sick people. We can work in thousands. And they can, this is a particular case of adjuvant radiotherapy after surgery for cervical cancer. And it's saying that if you don't get it, the control group, um, you'd expect 160 per thousand to be dead within five years of a study population. But the people who did get the treatment, that would drop to 134. That's a 16% reduction. And the medium risk group, you'd have a, a lower um, baseline, this must have been a high risk study group, um, and that would be the effect. But then they look at other outcomes, including the side effects of the treatment. But I'd like to point out just one other thing before we go on to the images, um, is this quality of evidence scale. I'd like to come back to that at the end, because this is something, it's an attempt at a sort of non-statistical assessment of the uncertainty associated with the evidence. They produce an estimate of the evidence and the, you know, what the number of people that will suffer the outcome will be with a confidence interval. So all that sort of estimate and confidence interval, standard statistical stuff. But on top of that, they put an additional assessment of how good the evidence is underlying all this. And we'll come back onto the grade scale later because I think it's a very important um, factor. Okay, we've been looking at ways to portray these things visually. I just love visualizations. And so one of the, the, the basic format is Take a thousand people. So there's a thousand people. That's what a thousand people looks like. Okay. What, could, what would happen to them if they do or don't get this treatment? So there's a thousand uh, women with cervical cancer and they've had surgery, and whether these are the ones who don't get the radiotherapy, and these are the ones who do get the radiotherapy. And we can look at this is how many will be dead within five years. This is one, how many have disease progression within five years. Some of these will be the same. These will be the same people. 
So they're not mutually exclusive, but there will be these um, adverse events that they'll have, and the people who do get the treatment will have more of these adverse events caused by the treatment, but they should have less of the bad of the deaths. Now, how can we, the, the idea then is, well, is it worth having the treatment? How do we balance off those benefits and harms? And so that visualization just takes the differences now between these and says the trade-off is that if you have the treatment, you, you've got that increased chance of having, out of every thousand people, you'll have that many more having these adverse events, but the benefit looks like that. And if you think this benefit outweighs this risk, this harm, then this is the treatment is, is appropriate for you. And also we put the um, quality of the evidence in down the middle. Now what this is supposed to fight against is what's called mismatch framing, which I haven't got time to go into in detail. I think you can probably guess what it is. What, what happens in a substantial proportion, uh, in a recent study in a third of medical papers, the benefits are all expressed as relative risks. This will reduce your risk, your death rate by 30%, and the harms are expressed as absolute risk. There's a one in 100 chance of this happening. Now that's called mismatch framing, and is, um, is a number of people now just saying this is completely unacceptable, writing in that this journal should not accept that as a description. Everything should be in terms of what will happen to a thousand people. And I so strongly support that. Um, but this, some of these stuff can be quite worrying. This is um, from a, day, a paper in the British Medical Journal recently. Two million patients using just observational database from a, a large general practice database looking at the effect of a thousand people taking statins. So that's like me, I'm a, I'm a man with a moderate risk of a heart attack or stroke. A thousand people like me taking statins, what would be the benefits? Well, you, if, you, if you don't take the statins, um, you'll have that many heart attacks or stroke in five years, and this many of these other things will go on. If you do take the statins, you'll have that many heart attacks and stroke, and this many other things. Of course, the other point that it really isn't illustrated in here is that also, all these thousand people will have to take a tablet every day for five years, which tends not to get mentioned. The fact that this enormous group of people are medicalized, they have to um, become more aware of, of their frailty. This could, of course, be beneficial. They might take better care of themselves, but it, it tends not to get mentioned at all. If we take the difference, though, between those, we can see that um, if we take the statins, a thousand people are saving that many of these bad events, but at the cost of these side effects, myopathies, the muscle illness, and um, this can get really quite severe. So is that worth it? This is a decision that everyone has to make. One of the problems with presenting it in, I think, really quite a clear way is that it might mean that people say, well, it's not worth it, I'm not gonna do it. It's, you know, I think, uh, but if you're doing shared care, the patient should be given full information in a way that is comprehensible to them. Okay, now one of the things we've been playing with then is, is uh, actually trying to, there's been recent research showing that uh, visualizations and graphics um, uh, can improve communication through attracting attention and just making people spend longer on the exercise. So one of the things we've been trying to do is to visualize risk. Now, okay, this is me, um, and I was told I had a 12% chance of a heart attack or stroke in 10 years. Should I take statins? We've written a sort of risk assessment tool which enables you to put your information in, and I shall load myself up here. Um, let's put me in, and uh, I, I, I'm not going to ask a member of the, I could just ask a member of the audience, an elderly member of the audience for his risk factors, but that seems a bit mean. Um, so there's me. In fact, um, I think I was on quite a good day, my blood pressure there, but um, you know, I think I was quite, quite lucky. 
Um, anyway, if I do that, according to this, my heart age is actually 10, I'm 57, is 10 years younger than I. I've got, I've got a young person's heart, amazing. Um, it's extraordinary, it doesn't feel like that all the time, but um, apparently, and that's, that's the age of someone with average risk factors who has the same 10 year risk of a heart attack or stroke as I do. And it looks like I can expect to survive to age 78 without a heart attack or stroke, as, as an average, people like me and my risk factors. Um, we can represent that as a survival curve. Now, th this is a very simple you know, expression that most people should be able to grasp. Um, we've been playing with survival curves. Now, it's been thought that survival curves, oh, that's very technical, it's quite tricky, but it's been shown, certainly with our experience is that with medical audiences really like the survival curves, and there's been experiments showing that patients with care and with careful, um, thoughtful um, communication can understand survival curves. So this represents my chance of being free of a heart attack or stroke um, as I get older and older, on average about 78. But now, could I improve it? What happens if I did take statins? Um, well, then my total cholesterol, my, I might be able to get that down to, you know, get it down to below, might even be able to get down below three, uh, below four. And my HDL should go up a bit. And my blood pressure, if I took blood pressure treatment, I might be able to get that down a bit. So if I did all those things, oh, no, that's a bit low. I'm sure I wouldn't, I wouldn't get it down that low. <laughs> Let's put it back up. Okay, I would gain actually two and a half years, expect to gain actually two and a half years free of a heart attack or stroke, moving up to 81. And that might be considered worthwhile, worthwhile doing. Although when you start looking at the side effects, maybe not, not quite so much. And we can also compare those, um, uh, the classic way is these is to use bar charts to compare five, 10 year risk. Um, the, rather than looking at the entire survival over the whole period, we could just say, what's, what's gonna happen by the time I'm 67? So this is um, my, the chance, if I don't do anything, of me having a heart attack or stroke around 12%. And if I do do those things, I can get it down to about 8%. That's a standard reduction you'd get from a statin. So I could do that. Or I could look at another way to look at it, and let's look at it like this. Um, and this is, this is a bit, we're gonna drop the smileys. People don't like smileys, but we're gonna replace them, I think, by these little people, which we were using before. Well, this is, this is quite a complicated one. I, I don't, we've gotta change this graphic, I think. But basically it shows these blank ones are other things I might die of before I'm 67. Uh, there's six of them. Now, we did have those great black gloomy faces, but the people we showed this to said it's gonna frighten people so much they'd never look at this again. So that's just, those are other causes of death. Now these are my heart attack or strokes. Now these are the heart attack or strokes I would save if I took this treatment. All of these, I'm not gonna have it anyway. So these yellow ones, uh, it just about shows up, are the heart attack or stroke out of 100 people like me that will be prevented by the intervention. So there's, only one in, there's a one in 20 chance of me benefiting from this intervention. Maybe it's not worth it, maybe it is. So, okay, so that's just, um, actually it's a toy. We're gonna to put another two more representations in there as well. It's a sort of toy to trial these out, see what people like, see what they want because it's been shown again and again that one size does not fit all. There's no single right way to communicate any of these things. It depends what people want to do, what they want to get out of it, and what their, what their numeracy is, and, um, and you know, what, what grabs their attention, essentially. Okay, so um, I'll try to get out of this. Yeah, come on. Oh yeah, oh yeah. So, the point about all these situations so far is I've been talking about nice, clean situations where history is a good guide. There are big databases that, that do heart disease. We can look at two million people in the general practice. We can learn, we can do that. But history is not always a good guide if we want to put probabilities on events. And the nice example I, I use for that 
is that these were the odds on Obama, the blue, and McCain, the odds in a betting exchange, an online betting exchange, being given every day for the year running up to the last US election. So we can see Obama started off uh, you know, a year before and about 7% chance would be. Now it's a betting exchange, that means it's the odds both being that people are both willing to lay bets and to take bets. So this is, you know, these are serious probabilities that people were betting, would be willing to bet on. About 7%. Wobbled around all over the place, um, had a jump there, but it may, I'm surprised, got up to 50% before he got the nomination while Hillary Clinton was still in the running. Because um, here, this, Clinton, Hillary Clinton dominated back here. And jumped around in the, in the, that was the crucial week with the sort of whole, looked like the whole financial system was collapsing. And briefly, McCain got ahead of Obama, just briefly. But then really sorted itself out. But people must still have been placing bets right up here, which is quite surprising. So my feeling is, and I come from the sort of Bayesian school of statistics, is that these are probabilities just as much as probabilities with flipping coins. They're, they're assessments of reasonable betting odds given the available information. I, I, does anyone know that? Anyone know? I went onto my William Hill account today to check this. I didn't put a bet on. I, I have this account for um, professional purposes only, of course. And uh, does anyone... I guess, I mean, a, a, a year before the election, Obama was about 7%, so there's about a 1 in 15 chance, and that's exactly where Sarah Palin is at the moment. So William Hill are offering 14 to 1 against Sarah Palin being the next president at the moment. Anybody? I didn't put any money on. It's just too awful to contemplate. So, <laughs> yeah. Except, of course, if you put a large bet on at 14 to 1, there would at least be some compensation if you ever did. <laughs> Yeah. So the point about this, um, I'm arguing that if you take this Bayesian perspective, that probabilities that are betting odds on unique events are just as valid as probabilities as probabilities of flipping coins. And um, so what I'd like to now talk about is this Bayesian perspective where um, we distinguish probabilities to do with round, truly random events. So for example, what's the probability this coin will be heads? It's not, I, I often have a two-headed coin. No, I'm not cheating. This is not a two-headed coin. What's the probability this will be heads? 50-50, right, okay. What's the probability this is heads? Yeah, come on. It's 50-50. What's your probability this is heads? It's 50-50, exactly. So the probability hasn't changed at all. Numerically, mathematically, it's identical. Conceptually, it's changed a lot. What we've moved from is the first type of probability, which you can think of as being classically it's been called aleatory probability, chance, unpredictability. This is the stuff we're used to with dice and games. And that's it. Something where there's genuine, complete unpredictability. And the other type of uncertainty that Bayesian, within a Bayesian framework we can put probabilities on is what's called epistemic uncertainty, our lack of knowledge, our ignorance. And the perspective, though, what I'd argue, is that you can still put probabilities on things that are um, either completely or a large component due to your lack of knowledge or ignorance. But of course that depends on the observer. It depends what you know and what you see. So to illustrate that, um, before, I'm going to do a little quiz. But first of all, I'd just like to show an example from some colleagues of mine who are, have been estimating the number of people in the country with hepatitis C using Bayesian methods for the Health Protection Agency. And they're representing their conclusions like this. Now, this is pure epistemic uncertainty. 
They're just, there are a certain number of people in the country with hepatitis C, we just don't know how many there are. There's no randomness, no chance, nothing in it whatsoever. It's pure ignorance on our part. So they do a Bayesian analysis and they end up with a distribution on how many people have hepatitis C. Now, this is actually a probability distribution. They've actually, um, a probability density, they've represented it using density of ink to represent the probability. I quite like. Not everybody likes these, I like them, because they don't, it means you don't, don't get fixated on 95% intervals and things like that. You really see that it's a blur, but, but with increased belief around here. Okay, so you can put probabilities on your ignorance, and that's what I want to have a go. Now, did everyone get a, a little handout? Did most of you got a handout? Okay, it's quiz time. It's quiz time. Now, well, this is quantifying your ignorance. If you haven't got a handout, you can still answer the question, um, and uh, maybe you can have a look at someone and find out the scoring system. You've got to score yourself. Okay, um, and I can put up the scores at the end, if necessary. Okay, quantify, I'm going to ask a little question, and ask you questions, and the answer is A or B, and you have to say which you prefer, and then you've got to say how confident you are with your answer. And you give your confidence a number between 5 and 10. And then you score yourself. Now the crucial thing, I should have a blackboard to put the scoring rule up, sorry. Um, the, it's on the sheet of paper for those who have it. Um, if you say 5, it means you haven't got a clue and you don't lose anything at all. If you say 10 and you're right, you get 25 points. If you say 10 and you're wrong, you lose 75 points. So it's really, so don't be too cocky is the answer. Okay, so let's, have a, let's start off with a quick question then. Which is higher, the Eiffel Tower or Canary Wharf? Now, if you're absolutely sure of the answer, just put A or B and put 10. Be aware, though, that if you're ever wrong, you're going to lose quite a lot of points. Okay, have you done? You've got to say A or B, and then a number between 5 and 10. If you haven't got a clue, put 5. Okay, are you ready? The answer is... A. By... It's, bad. it's, only, only, it's not that different, I thought. So the Eiffel Tower is taller. So if you said um, 9 out of 10 on the Eiffel Tower, you'd score 24. As far as I remember, 8 out of 10, you would score... Um, would you score 21, etc. Okay, so that's a nice of a topical one. Who's older, Prince William or Kate Middleton? <laughs> nice little topical. Go on. Who's older, Kate Middleton? Now, if you know, you, can, you might not know. I'm, I'm asking questions that I hope you don't know. That's the whole point. The first one is a bit easy, maybe. Okay, are you ready? You said your answer. What do you think it is? It is B. She's six months older than Prince William. Okay. Normally I do um, Clegg and Cameron, who's older. Okay. I thought I'd do Prince William Clegg. Okay, next one. Which is older, LSE or Imperial College? Which was founded first? You should know. Now, if you haven't got a clue, just own up and put five. You know. Okay, are you ready for your answer and your confidence? The answer is A. 1895, Imperial College of Science and whatever it's called then is 1906. So it's 12 years old, um, LSE. Okay, next one. Are you ready? Which is larger in land area, Belgium or Switzerland? People <laughs> shaking their head. You know. All right. Okay, you ready? And the answer is. I think it's quite, it's quite a lot larger. Okay, clever clogs is, if you think you're so clever. Which is bigger, Venus or Earth? 
Yeah, no clicking on your phone, no Wikipedia, come on. I know, I know, I just, <laughs> no cheating. Which is bigger, you know, in, in diameter than Venus or Earth? Anybody know? You know, if you don't know, you just say five, I've got a clue, just stay where you are. Okay, you ready? You ready? The answer is Earth. Slightly bigger. Slightly bigger. Okay, and the final question, I won't go up to ten. Final question. Who died first? I don't mean 9 o'clock against 11 o'clock or something. Who died early in the earlier year, Beethoven or Napoleon? Who died first, Beethoven or Napoleon? Unrelated events. Okay, are you ready? Are you ready? The answer is Napoleon died just six years before Beethoven. Okay, now for those who had the scoring sheets, have you scored yourself? Okay, did anyone get lots of points? Did anyone get more than 100 points? Minus. No, I know, but we'll do... <laughs> we'll get onto that in a minute. <laughs> That's fine, does anyone actually know anything? That's the first thing. Did anyone get 100? Anyone got, get 80 points? 70? 60? 50? Hey, so if somebody knows something, great. 50 people got about 50, that's great. So it's quite tricky. Okay, now we go the other way. Did anyone get less than minus 50? A few people, yes, yeah. Anyone get less than minus 100? Hey! <laughs> if you get very, the, the point about this training, this is the sort of training that weather forecasters go through, or anyone who's making an intelligence operative, people are putting probabilities on opinions. They have to learn not to be both cocky and ignorant. It's a very dangerous combination. <laughs> I, I do this with schools quite a lot, and I must say, it does tend to be sex-linked, that this is a, a fairly male characteristic, to get huge negative scores, because first of all, they don't know anything, and secondly, <laughs> but they think they do. <laughs> it's a, a very dangerous combination. This is supposed to train you out of it. Okay, now it may seem, this scoring rule, may, this is the scoring rule, may seem really harsh on the errors, because if you are cocky and ignorant, in other words, you give a high scoring rule wrong, it really penalizes you. The, the formula is you get 25 minus the error squared, and the error being the, the distance from, instead of 10 out of 10, if you said 9 out of 10, you'd only lose 1. Um, but if you said 10 and the answer was 0, you know, and you were wrong, and was in a way the true answer was 0, you would lose 25 minus 100 is 75. So it's what's called a quadratic scoring rule. It penalizes you by the square of the error. And it's, that's what's known as a proper scoring rule. It's actually been shown it's, it's got the absolutely mathematically correct form to encourage honesty. If you don't have these rather vicious penalizing scoring rules, it encourages people to exaggerate their confidence, to be cocky. In other words, if they're 7 out of 10, truly 7 out of 10 confidence, it pays them to say 10 in max to maximize their expected gain. So this may seem a nasty scoring rule, but actually it's the one that is used. It was developed in weather forecasting. It's the right one to use. Okay, so the idea of that is to illustrate that you can quantify your uncertainty, which is purely epistemic, just due to the fact that you don't know. Now, in practice, in real life, when we're making uncertain statements, things are a mixture of things we don't know about because we're ignorant and things we genuinely can't predict. It's actually a, a very pragmatic division between epistemic and aleatory. Actually, it's not a clear division at all. It's just a pragmatic one. Um, epistemic is essentially what uncertainty that could be reduced by learning more and aleatory is what couldn't be. Now, when the Bank of England make their monetary their projections, the Monetary Policy Committee use a mixture of modelling and judgment in order to decide these fan charts, which are the intervals 
for looking three years ahead, this is for, for growth, um, they, it's a fan chart using this nice coloured thing where the outer interval is a 90% interval and that's a, an 80%, 70, 60, 50, 40, 10. So they're prediction intervals for what might happen in the future based on a mixture of judgment and modelling. Now, the crucial thing is we can, you know, this was in 2007, what actually happened, well that's what actually happened, and that's, no, we have to decide, is that an error, is that a mistake, you know, is this, is this blameworthy in any way? And I, when I you know, saw that, I thought, it's not very good, is it? It doesn't look very sort of, like these probabilities were very meaningful. However, it can be defended if you remember that this is a 90% interval. There's a 10% probability they were expressing that it would be in the white area. And they don't see where it might be. It could be anywhere. So one in 10 of their projections they expect to be in the white area. I think this shouldn't be white. In fact, it should be sort of slightly pale, muddy, just to say this is possible. Because otherwise the fan makes it look as if that contains all the uncertainty. So maybe this isn't so bad at all, provided that you admit that you don't necessarily know everything that's going on. So here we go back to Rumsfeld, the, our great, the great sage of risk analysis. And you know, he's, well, you know, it's, it's the only sensible thing that politicians ever said. He's great. Um, but he's, he's right that, that um, actually to acknowledge the fact that we may be wrong and actually widen our uncertainty to allow the possibility that things might not be doing what we think they're doing seems to be very important indeed. And of course, this goes back a long way. Of, of actually acknowledging the possibility of wrong, acknowledging the, the limitations of modelling and quantification. And that's for the last part of the talk, I'd just like to talk about, having start, talked about uh, things we can put numbers on, I'd like to move into things which we can't put numbers on. So Frank Knight, as an economist in 1921, made this distinction between risk and uncertainty. Risk are things we can put numbers on. Uncertainty, he says, is when we just don't know, you know, not susceptible of measurement. Keynes, 1937, got a very nice quote. About these matters, there is no scientific basis on which to form any calculable probability whatsoever. We simply do not know. At that point, he was talking about what might happen in 1970. That's what he was was discussing. Saying, I I don't know, I can't put a probability on it. Just don't know. So this is quite challenging to, you know, it's brought up in statistics where you feel, I should be able to try to put a number on everything. And what it reflects is a, a broader sense of uncertainty and expressing uncertainty than I, as a statistician, was brought up to do. I was brought up to think about probabilities of future events, random variables. I was brought up to think about errors that parameters of models might be wrong. We might not know what coefficients to use in our model, and um, we can put intervals or even distributions on those. I was even brought up to doubt, to acknowledge uncertainty about model structure. We might not know which covariates to include, how to build a model, you know, etc., etc. We might have a whole list of alternative models you know, to do with our limited scientific knowledge. What I wasn't brought up to do, and what I think is actually really important, is to look at some of these deeper uncertainties. For example, things you know you haven't put into the model, things you know you haven't taken into account in climate change. You might not have modelled the clouds, you might not have modelled the methane cycle, you might not have done all sorts of things. And you know it's not in there, um, and you could call this sort of indeterminacy. You just didn't feel confident to know how to do it, to do the quantification. And then, of course, these are things you know are inadequate. Then, of course, you've got this extra thing around the outside, which is ignorance, which is the things you don't know you didn't put in, you know, things you never even thought of, the real surprises, the shocks. And actually, it's been pointed out to me that even you should even think about this larger square here, which is a much more cultural issue of the whole way in which you set up the problem in the first place, the whole context. 
So what I'd like to just finish off by doing is just su suggesting some ways in which people have, uh, have looked at um, ways to express these perhaps deeper uncertainties, going beyond the quantification. I love quantification, but at some point, you've got to realize you just don't know how to do it anymore. So the European Food Standards Agency is looking at a, a, a method where they, things that have been left out of the model, they just put into a table and say, well, it might make the, the estimate a bit bigger, a bit slower. A bit, we don't have much, but we think it might have a small effect, positive, whatever. So this is on a particular food exposure. But they just didn't know how much of this particular contaminant um, they would be, uh, that people would be taking in through their consumption of food. So qualitative assessment of what's been left out. Something I really like, and we're going right back now to the Cochrane collaboration, the thing I put up at the beginning, was a way of expressing a, a global overall doubt about the quality of the evidence. And almost the possibility of being wrong. Now, I don't think, can you put a probability on that I might be wrong? Is, there a, is it possible to put a 5% chance I'm wrong? I'm not sure that the Bank of England is doing it. Um, this is, a, a, I think it's a very nice scale, is that you, you define the chance of being wrong, the evidence quality, in terms of the fact that um, you might further, it's low quality, if further research is very likely to have an important impact on our confidence in the estimate effect, and likely to change the estimate. So you define it pragmatically in terms of the fact that you expect to change your mind. I can tell you what I think it is, but it might change, you know, it's not based on much at all. Whereas high quality evidence says, I really feel I'm unlikely to change my mind. I think it's a very nice way of doing it. A nice way of doing it. it could be, um, it's now been very widely used in medicine, and it could be actually got much broader implications. Oh, yes. Yeah. Sorry, that's my daughter, Rosie, who isn't here. Um, this is to remind me to talk about swine flu. Because um, she was in, Me in, in, um, in Mexico when it all broke out. She's not taking it very seriously there, I don't think, with wearing on her mask. And um, we actually wrote an article together in, uh, in the Times to say, I haven't got a clue about the risks of swine flu. That was very early. That was in May. Now, what did the government do later on in the thing? We can, when in the swine flu, as the epidemic grew, well, they produced estimates in July and in September which were worst-case scenarios about what the swine flu epidemic might cause. And they said, well, we might expect 30% clinical cases, and this death rate, so these people actually you know, got symptoms, a lot of more people would have the flu, and lead to that many deaths. Now, this is considerably after a lot more evidence came in. Now, the, these numbers really have been quite strongly criticised. Um, we could view this as being ultra-precautionary planning. These combinations both of these were very, would, be, would be considered very high estimates, even at that time. The 30% was still left over from, um, and, and these numbers were still left over from, almost too much notice take, being taken of the original Mexican data, and that not being discarded when the European data just didn't fit this pattern at all. So, and also the approach of taking two parameters you're not sure of, taking each at a very extreme value and putting them both together, the idea of, you know, it's so unlikely that that sort of perfect storm would occur that this is actually planning for it in a very precautionary way. In fact, there are around 450 deaths after spending of two billion pounds. So, you know, can we afford this level of caution? Because it's, it's one way of responding to these deeper uncertainties is to go ultra-cautious. And I suppose my argument would be, no, you can't. You can't always be so cautious. And I know that Professor Phillips here has been looking at a much more rational way approach to the, the deeper uncertainties 
for this kind of planning. Now, I really am going to finish now. Um, what, I'm now going to say stuff that undermines everything I've said. Um, yeah, I, you know, I'm a statistician, I've grown up with quantifying and maybe acknowledging that you can't quantify everything but still treating a very scientific approach and in a way expecting that that's, that's my job, to do the science and produce a judgment that people can use in policy. However, we know that humans, us, me, you and everybody else, the numbers are not that important in terms of our perceptions of the risks. And we're much more dominated by our emotions, our personality, our personal experiences feeling of control, in particular the cultural beliefs about how society should be organised, our social values, whether we believe in um, that people should you know, give up some of their, their freedoms for the sake of the community, whether they feel that we should be deferred to higher authority of others and we shouldn't expect everyone to be treated the same, etc. And this of course leads very strongly to attitudes of trust and whether people believe the messages they're being told. All these factors are very important, and the probabilities are largely ignored, and the evidence is largely ignored in much of the communication. My argument is that I can accept all of this and still think it's worthwhile trying to quantify as much as possible. However, we do have to acknowledge this. Um, people have been looking at this sort of risk perception across for years. This is early work by Paul Slovic, looking at factors that influence people's fears. I mean, this is 25 years ago, and it's quite interesting then that um, the same factors have been shown to uh, dominate people's feelings, whether they, they dread the risk and whether it's a risk that's known or unknown, well, well understood or badly understood, or whether it's dread or it's rather sort of familiar and not dread. So here is caffeine and aspirin, here is nerve gas, down here is dynamite and handguns, up here is microwave ovens. People, 25 years ago, microwave ovens were striking terror into the heart of the community. So it does show, things can change. It'd be very interesting to see what you know, uh, a current assessment of this will look like in 25 years' time. One, one thinks of many of the things people are making a fuss about now. Actually, people say, what, hey? What was all the fuss about? Something, uh, some old, rather old work that having it suffering, uh, having a real resurgence is old work from anthropologist Mary Douglas on cultural theory in which, as I mentioned, you attempt to, you, this was developed in sort of tribal um, communities in which she was identifying beliefs and attitudes in terms of the, um, where people were on the scale between being individualist and communitarian and where they were between egalitarian and hierarchical. And this work, which is essentially theoretical work in anthropology, is now being um, strongly developed as an empirical science with questionnaires um, being developed to, to test people where they are on this grid, and it being found that where you are on these grids hugely determines your attitude to the environment, to guns, to abortion, to um, uh, whether girls should be uh, vaccinated by HPV, GM foods, etc. And this is the part of this cultural cognition project, which I, uh, I think um, is some very nice work that's going on. And uh, I recommend a paper in Nature, recently by Diane Kahan, who just talks about the fact that if we're going to communicate risks about any of these things, we need to take into account that what people do is to trust and endorse positions which reinforces their feelings about how society should be run and their feeling of community. It's very, very important. It's, in a way, it's obvious. It does seem to have been largely ignored by the scientific community. So finally, I'm, I've gone on a bit, I'm terribly sorry, especially as we've got food and drink. Um, finally, final thing, story about uncertainty, deep uncertainties. Um, this is 
uh, story that was in the newspaper, I saw it earlier this year, February, about a woman who bought some, a box of eggs, a box of large eggs, and they all had double yolks. Look at that. They all had double yolks. Amazing. So she got onto the newspapers, it was on the Today program, a man from the Egg Council said, my goodness, this is rare, only one in a thousand eggs are double yoked. So somebody did the multiplication, with a chance of so thousand times a thousand, and decided that this had a one in a million, million, million chance of happening. Amazing. Now, this is the worst number that's ever appeared in the, in the media. I mean, you know, I, it's a lovely, every time a probability, a chance or a coincidence appears in the, in the newspapers, you know it's wrong. It's always wrong. And um, I, got, I got a lot of these I do with schools, all the stories about kids being born on the same day. They're always wrong. Um, but this is beautifully wrong. This is more wrong than anything you've ever seen in your life. Um, this is so wrong. First of all, that number can't be right, because although we eat two, um, you know, two billion boxes of eggs every year in this country, it's quite a lot. If that was the true probability, you'd still have to wait 500 million years for this magic box of eggs to work. Um, and the one in a thousand is wrong, especially if she's buying double, extra large eggs, and double yolk eggs are much more common. Um, the model is wrong, they're not independent. Eggs tend to come from the same flock in the same box, so once you've got one double yolk, more likely to get the rest. But even that does not in any way encompass the wrongness of it. Um, and I found this out, I found this out because the next box of eggs I bought had six double yolks. This is my kitchen. I'm a glass of wine. I'm about to make myself a you know, heart-destroying omelette. So amazing. A one in a trillion. How did I do it? Well, I went to Waitrose and bought a box of double yolked eggs. So, that's amazing. Who knew? Did anyone know you could just go and buy a box of double yolk eggs? There. Donald Rumsfeld was right. A classic example. The unknown unknown. We just never crossed our minds. This is, this is a terrible shock to me that double yolks... There's no chance in it at all. People just put, hold an egg up to the light, see it's a double yolk, and put it in a box. So there's no chance whatsoever. Wonderfully wrong story. So to conclude, all as Stabsu is analysts and we build all these lovely statistical models and we, we make all these things and try to tell policymakers what to do. However, they're like models can be like guide, guidebooks. They can be out of date, they can be too simple, they can be too complicated, they can be wrong. But they can still be useful if used with, with caution. So they're not the truth, they can be useful but used with caution. And I think the crucial thing is as scientists we have to acknowledge that Disputes among the public and scientists are not just because of their ignorance, but because of different cultural worldviews. Okay, thank you very much. Thank you very much. Yeah, sorry to have gone on so, so long. Pleasure. Um, <laughs> Can we have a drink yet? No, oh. questions first. Sorry, not allowed, not allowed to have food in your intent. Sorry. Are there, are there any questions? It's going to be a question. Yeah. Do we have? Do we? Well, do you want to just project and see what happens? So could you stand up so that people can Oh, no. It's okay. I, I haven't got a mic. It's one that I rather like. Um, I've actually seen there was a gradient. I know. I visit it regularly. Yeah, do you know who else is there? Well, uh, William Blake, Daniel Defoe, and John Bunyan. Can someone ask a question? Yeah. 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 Yeah.
Oh. You, can you do it? Oh, yeah, there's a graveyard called Bunhill Fields, um, just outside the city of London, that contains Thomas Bayes, also William Blake, John Bunyan. Who else has got in there? Ah, Richard Price, is he there? No, it's the Reverend Richard, is it? I can't remember his name. He was very short. Ah, right. He is very, and I remember. I think Price. it's Richard Price. But, Probably yeah, it's Richard yeah, Price. Yeah. I think he's Richard. Yeah, the yeah. point was, I actually went and told somebody in my group, I had just been visiting the babies for that evening. Yeah. And I said, and by the way, read the lesson. Price is also buried there. Isn't that a surprise? Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I actually this was a note question. Yeah, and yeah. in fact, I said to said, no, it wasn't. And I thought that that was rather surprising. Exactly. Exactly. Surprises are never surprising. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, how are you doing with your microphone now? Right, you ask a question upstairs. I often ask these people in quantum mechanics, especially like the Heisenberg concept, people who wasted their lifetime and, and, and their wealth of gambling, and trying to study with proper caustic theories. But anyway, the thing I, I need to ask you is here. Someone puts his finger at the socket of the circuit, I could guarantee him to get a kitchen shot. Now, if you have five of your coin and you flip it a million times, yeah. can you guarantee that what I, I will get ahead? No. And I emphasize the word guarantee. Mm. So, I, what I'm asking, the very definition of uh, yeah. No, it's it's very difficult. I mean, I got involved in um, a BBC Horizon program on infinity, and I was because we um, had a program that was doing the shape, the monkey writing Shakespeare, and we'd had it going for eleven days, and it just got you know six letters or something like that, and it was going to have to go quite a long time before it got the whole of Shakespeare. But I said, yeah, well, it'll get there in the end, and as I said, it's not logical that it logically true that it will do. But for any probability you state, that probability will get as, as close as you want to one that it will happen. So it, it's, um, but you're right. It is a problem with the probability. The probability is that it's it happens with probability one. That doesn't mean the same as it logically is bound to happen. Those two statements are mathematically different. No guarantee. Yeah, no guarantee. Yeah. Okay. Any. Oh, yes. <laughs> oh, yes, yeah, exactly. Oh, no. well, no, this is very interesting because I'm now working with the Met Office on communicating of uncertainty about short-term weather forecasts, <laughs> which is um, something because they produce probabilities for all these things. They can, they, for any particular place of the next five days, they can give you a probability that it will rain at that time and place. But those aren't reported to the public. They sell them to uh, to companies and people who are actually going to, you know, it's, you know, could be financially very important. Um, but so they can take out insurance. But some, uh, those aren't given out to the public yet, and uh, they want to give them out. 
And so uh, the idea is that in future, so we're going to experiment with various different ways of representing those, but the idea is that in the future you will, there will be a distinct, you will not just be told scattered showers, you'll be able to be told the probability it's going to rain on you. I still don't know whether you're going to take your umbrella. <laughs> you will then have the information to make a rational choice. <laughs> Exactly. That's why I say it's, it appears useful at first. It's quite nice. In fact, actually trying to nail it down, I think it's impossible. Except possibly at the subatomic level, where I genuinely believe in, in randomness. Many people believe that actually, apart from that, there's nothing that's random. And if we only knew enough, we'd be able to predict exactly how the coin would land. I mean, if I was a magician, I could make it come down. Um, Percy Diaconis, I think, can flip a coin and, and land it how he wants. So um, it's all, that's all just ignorance, and there's no such thing as genuine randomness apart from its subatomic level. I think, yeah, in a sense, you could go around in circles. You know, is everything predetermined and we just don't know it, or is there genuine indeterminate, you know, randomness? I, almost no point in talking about it. So I think the crucial thing is that the pragmatic barrier is it's epistemic if. Receipt of further information will reduce that uncertainty. It's, it's, it's how much your uncertainty could be reduced by learning more, or, you know, uh, or feasibly more, is the epistemic bit. After that, it becomes allegory, and it's just a label for irreducible uncertainty that uh, you know, we're just never going to be able to get any closer. So it's a pra I think it's a very pragmatic division, not a philosophical one. Thank you very much. Um, last week uh, we heard actually from uh, Dr. Paul Slovich on a talk on risk as feeling, and he posed an interesting point with regards to framing mismatch yeah. and deliberate framing mismatch, yeah. uh, where that whereby a negative outcome would be presented as say a one in ten chance of it yeah, happening, yeah, sure. rather than a ten percent chance yeah, of it happening. Exactly. Uh, to prompt a counter-response more strongly from the audience. Uh, I just wanted to know if you could comment on that at all. No, uh, it stuff's lovely. Yeah, I mean, it's just been shown. I mean, the point about this is that psychological experiments show that the presentation does affect people's... You know, there's endless experiments show that you know, a 10 out of 100 risk um, looks a lot bigger than a 1 out of 10, it looks smaller than a 100 out of 1,000. And you can endlessly manipulate people's perceptions by just changing the denominator. So the argument is you must use a fixed denominator and, and just use whole numbers for benefits and harms. And the, the, the mixing relative, you know, a 10% change with a 1 in 1,000, that language, which is used all the time in the medical literature, completely unacceptable. But the point is that it's not just psychological experiments. You just see people doing it all the time. Just look at so many medical papers, or a lot of reports about screening and things like that. They'll talk about, or, you know, re reduce cancers by 30% and side effects in 1 in 10,000 people. Well, actually, that doesn't tell you anything at all. You cannot make a decision on the basis of that information. It's Henry at back. What's going on with that? Yeah. So, so, I think it's time to thank you very much. There's a question. There's Henry in the back. Oh, is there? I couldn't see you, Henry.
Oh, that's a terrible question. Will, <laughs> will, you know, will brain research on existence of free will is, uh, you know, um, affect subjective probabilities? Um, I have absolutely no idea at all. I mean, you were assessing subjective probabilities, all of you, you know, this evening. Um, are you influenced by, were you do, doing it under pure free will or not? It's an issue. Ah, no idea. <laughs> yeah, that's it. Good, thank you. Well, thank you very much. <laughs> thank you all.